Mailbag. It's another mailbag episode here on Nothing Personal. You go on Apple, you rate and review. Within the reviews, if you ask a question, we're going to try to answer it. Different than the So You Want to Talk to Samson, which is during the regular shows. We do an end of month or middle of the month mailbag episode whenever we feel like it. And we answer your questions. Again, I want to say this clearly. We love being with you every day for 45 minutes a day here on Nothing Personal. Coca and I work our tuchuses off because you guys want content and you enjoy the craziness, silliness, and interest that we have when we talk about sports or trending topics or entertainment or culture or politics, whatever we talk about. And we do it for you and for us, but mostly for us. But mailbag episode is when you ask questions and we answer them. And we've got so many that we're doing a double. What's better than doing a double? <laughs> Side note, a double shot when you're at a ballpark and you go to the bar and get a drink and they say, would you like a double or a single? Just know that when you buy the double shot, you are participating in the single greatest margined sale of the entire ballpark. The double shot mixed drink is how teams make the most money. Double. Here we go. David, Survivor, blindsided. I've heard you talk about being on Survivor, but I never followed the show after the first season. I've never heard anything but throwaways about that stint on Nothing Personal. Please put this in the show and expound upon your experience for your newer audience. Thank you. Well, I don't know if you're watching this on YouTube, Nothing Personal with David Sampson. Couldn't you just hit the subscribe button? We're not even at 3,000 subscribers. We're tens and twenties of thousands of you. More are listening every day on Spotify or Apple or Google or wherever you get your podcasts. But for whatever reason, just go to the YouTube channel, Nothing Personal with David Sampson, and hit subscribe. And you can watch me and my blazer listening to Coca every day. And you can see sometimes when we do the show, this is the background right here over my left shoulder. That is the survivor torch right there. I'm also looking at the survivor rice basket. I'm also looking in my studio, which is code for one, one half of an office, a, the chair that I sat on during tribal council when I got voted off that Jeff Prope signed. Should I go get it, Coca? Should I lift it and bring it into the show? I'd have to literally get up in the middle of a show, not stop recording, but keep talking because we don't stop recording. We don't edit. We don't do any of that. Anyway, take my word for it. There is a chair there and it says, I'm sorry you only got to sit on this only once. Love, Jeff Probst. I'm starting at the end. I got voted off first. Let me go back. I talk about Survivor. It's one of the things that people want to hear about. Greatest TV show, CBS is brilliant. And I'm not saying that because I'm at CBS. It started in 2000, May of 2000, I'll never forget it. Was it May? I may have the wrong month. I think it was May. I think it was a replacement show. It was this new game show. This young guy gets on. Apparently what you do is you go to the jungle, you starve yourself to death, and then you get eliminated one at a time. But then the people who eliminate you have to vote for you and you can win a million dollars and you can get naked. That's what Richard Hatch did the first winner. And I said, I was watching it with Larry Beinfest in the Salon VIP at La Stade Olympique. It was May 31st, 2000. You should check that, Coca. Do you have the opportunity to look to see whether the Expos played at home on May 31st, 2000? 
That would be incredible. That was my first season in baseball. I started in December of 1999. So the first season started in April. It was April 3rd, 2000, a home game in Montreal against the Dodgers that we lost, I want to say, 7-2 to or 7-3 to when Kevin Brown of the Dodgers beat Dustin Hermanson, who was our opening day pitcher for the Marlins. We had a bunch of errors. But check Coca to see if the Expos played at home May 31st because I believe we watched it the actual day that we were uh, at home. But no, Coke is saying that we were in Cincinnati that day. If we were in Cincinnati on May 31st, 2000, what that means is that we watched, when was the next home game after that, Coca? By the way, we don't rehearse. We just talk about what we want to talk about, and then we talk about it, and then we keep doing the show. And now I'm just delaying so he can look at the schedule and see when we were first home. And it looks like we were home. Oh, by the way, we were home Friday against the Orioles. So we obviously watched the first episode then Friday night because we wouldn't have been able to watch it in Cincinnati because we would have been in Cincinnati. So we watched it Friday, June 2nd, right after the Orioles game. We had it, we had it saved. Back then, we had our video guy who would capture each game on a VHS tape forget all the computer and all the stuff that happens now where you can do an app bat by an app bat. We actually were taping games. And then when players were studying tape, they'd have to fast forward or rewind to their bats, press pause and look at something and then forward again or back. So we got a VHS brought to us at, in the, uh, in the suite and we watched the first survivor and we said to each other, we want to do this. And Larry said, I'm never going to do this. I don't like bugs. And he said, you're a city guy. Why would you ever want to do Survivor? And I said, that's exactly why I want to do Survivor. And Larry said, I don't want to take my shirt off. I only do that when I'm drunk. And I said, Larry, I don't mind taking my shirt off. I'm totally fine with that. You know, I'll work in a salad from time to time and I'll eat bugs and I can, I don't need to eat a lot. I'm good. And I could do these challenges. I want to get on the show. We watched Survivor every season after that. I never missed a season, never missed an episode, ever. In about 2010, we were in the middle of building a ballpark in Miami. Maybe it was 2009, 2010. I sent in a video. You know how at the end of each season of Survivor, they'll say, if you want to be, a, if you think you have what it takes to be the sole survivor and win the million dollar prize, go to cbs.com slash survivor and submit your video today. So I made a video, some ridiculous video, sent it in. Didn't hear anything, nothing. I said, I'm not giving up. I got to do this show. I got to, I got to be on Survivor. We get the ballpark open in 2012. The season ends up being an unmitigated disaster. Worst trade of my life, which ended up being a great baseball trade, the Toronto Blue Jays, unbelievably big trade with the Marlins that we did after that failed season in 12, where we traded away everybody and got back everybody and blah, 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 blah. I said, all right, stadium's done. I'm going to send in another video. So I put on shorts and a shirt. I bring out the World Series trophy that I have. And I said, if I have what it takes to get a stadium built and to get a World Series trophy, I can be the sole survivor. My name's David Sampson. Call me. The next day, I get a call from casting at Survivor saying, is this really David Sampson, the president of the Marlins? I said, yes, this is me. And that's the video you submitted. It's the worst audition video we've ever seen. You have to do a new video because we would have interest in the possibility of you being cast. 
I said, that's the video. I had my daughter film me on an iPhone or whatever it was. And then I sent it in. I didn't understand how to upload it and you had to download it. You had to make it into a JWAD or a PREG or some sort of whatever. I couldn't do it. So I said, can you help me? And they said, no, you need help doing a video. This is an actual conversation I'm actually having with the people in casting. I said, all right, I'll do another video. So I got my daughter together, did another video, got another call like a few days later. And they said, all right, we'd like you to come to California because this could be real. But before you come to California for testing, you have to get a letter of permission from the owner of your team that you can disappear for 46 days plus seven days in December. I said, 46, 56, 50, that's 53 days. I thought Survivor was 39 days and they wouldn't answer a question I had. It is the most mysterious process of all time. You think to yourself, is it a 45 day season? You don't know a thing. So you fill out an application then because I was old. How old was I, Coca, in 2012? 78, 88, 98, 08, I was 44 years old. I turned 40, that's not right, I guess so, 44 years old. They made me go to a special doctor. I had to get a full physical, but I said, no, I got a physical with the Marlins, spring training. I always get a physical, I'm always the healthiest guy, I have low cholesterol, I'm not overweight, I'm good. I'm run, I run marathons, I'm, I had done a double marathon. You know, come on, everything's fine, right? They said, no, you gotta go. I had to get a stress test, I had to get a heart thing. And ironically enough, that is when it was discovered that I have leaky valves in my heart. I have a leaky aortic and mitral valve. And I didn't know that until I got the quote unquote survivor physical, but I was still allowed to move forward. And then they put you on a treadmill and they make you run until you puke. And I had done that. That's like a Tuesday for me. So I passed that physical. I get on a plane and I said to them, this is actually, I've never told this Coca before, but they fly you to California for what they would call casting finals, where they bring in a bunch of people and from that they make the cast. And they said, hey, here's the CBS travel agent and this is your flight to California. I said, hey, I have an idea. I'll make my own flight because they were gonna fly me right in seat 36A and I'd rather fly in row 1A. I'm, a, I'm spoiled that way, I'm lucky that way. I've got a lot of miles. I said, I, I'm gonna fly first to California. And they said, well, no one ever does their own flights. What are you doing? I said, just, I'm doing my own flights. I finally got permission to do my own flights. I land in California. They take me to a hotel called the Doubletree. I'll never forget it. I actually have it written down to this day. I kept it in my notes section. I, this is live right now, so I'm actually gonna go to this where I haven't done this in a very long time, where I can tell you where I stayed and who I was with. And of course, because we're here and I can't find it, but it was a double, oh, here it is. It was the Double Tree Suites by Hilton Hotel in Santa Monica, California from December 7th to December 14th, 2012. And I was in room 321. So what you do is you get to the airport, you land in California, they pick you up and they take you to this hotel. They give you a key to the room and say, go to your room, don't ever leave your room, answer the hotel phone when it rings. 
I was like, well, what do you mean? What am I supposed to do? Go to your room. I'm not used to being spoken to that way. I'm the guy in charge. The first thing they said is we don't care if you're the president of a team. We don't care if you're unemployed and living under a bridge. We're making the rules. We are your captain now. Give up control. And I'm a total type A control freak. So I go to my room. I unpack my bag. I start to watch him. We bring, bring. DS, that's what they called me. They never used my name. I was DS the entire time. DS, please report to room 725. So I go to room 725, and it turns out to be rows of tables. And I walk in, and everybody's sitting there. And here's who was there who I had no idea who they were. Sarah Lucina, Spencer Bledsoe, people I ended up doing Survivor with, Wu, who was my season of Survivor, Tony, who was my season of Survivor, Cass, who was my season of Survivor. We were all in this room with a bunch of other people. And they gave me an IQ test. I didn't realize that was part of the deal. So I take the IQ test and it was a, it was a multiple choice, fill in the blank. Spencer Bledsoe, I, I, he looks like a kid. He looks like a moron to me. Turns out he's the smartest guy in the room, sort of. And uh, I finished the IQ test. No one else has finished. I'm, I'm done. And I'm like, I'm done. So I brought the test to the front of the room. They sort of look at me. Everybody's staring at me. And I go back to my room. Phone rings. Please report to the third floor and wear sneakers. What the hell is that? Go down to the third floor. That's your 45 minutes of workout time that day. So I'm there with a bunch of other people who I had just seen in the IQ test, and I was on a treadmill next to Sarah Lucina. It turns out when I got to know Sarah, because spoiler alert, we were on the same season, Sarah noticed my Iron Man tattoo and was like, this guy, I don't want any part of him. The irony is I'm sitting here as a middle-aged guy, huffing and puffing, I really wasn't, trying to show off and trying to wear a tank top that showed I had a little build and I was, but not too strong, but not too weak. And I had the treadmill like on 6.2, pretending I could run nine and a half minute pace, whatever the case is. Meanwhile, I'm looking at everyone, they're looking at me, back to the room. All right, bring, bring, please go to the cafeteria. Go down, three meals a day, you eat alone in silence. You go to a buffet. You're not allowed to talk to anyone. You can't look at anyone. You get your food. You eat in a half hour. You go back to your room. Phone rings. You then go meet the head of casting. Phone rings. You go meet Mark Burnett and Jeff Probst. I sit down with Mark Burnett and Jeff Probst, and they say, David, you really going to do Survivor? I said, not only am I going to do Survivor, but I'm going to win Survivor. Jeff Probst looks at me. I just met the guy, and he says, you can't win this show. I said, Yes, I can, and I'm going to. And I said, by the way, you better not tell anyone that I'm the president of the Marlins. And they said, oh, no, not us. We're never going to do that. Let's see what happens. Next day, phone rings. Please report to room 769. And you walk in, and it's a guy with needles. And you're like, ooh, this could get interesting. We got shots. Hepatitis A, hepatitis B. Coronavirus 19. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't that. It was like syphilis, gonorrhea, hepatitis, herpes, and tetanus, and I can't remember what else. So you get a bunch of shots, and I'm thinking to myself, I must be on the show because I'm getting shots. And then, bring, bring. We'd like you to know that just because you got the shots does not mean you are being cast in the show. Thank you. Bring, bring. You may now leave. All right back to the airport, back to Florida. 
No idea whether I'm going to be cast. No idea whether I was good in front of Jeff Probst from Urpernet. They do camera. They do settings. They do this and that. Get a phone call. David, you are being cast in season 29. That's amazing. When does that film? Sometime in July, August, or whatever. Then get a call. No, you're going to do 28. No, 29. No, 28. By the way, go shopping. You got to wear this, that. Get a blazer. Get a this, get a that. So I went shopping. I bought clothes. I was obsessed with it. It's all I talked about was Survivor. That was it. That's all I thought about. And you can tell because we lost 100 games in 2013. Get a letter saying, here's your flights to Los Angeles. You leave on July 4th. So I said, all right. I got my VPs together. I had a meeting because I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. My family had to sign a form that said they wouldn't tell anyone that it was private. I had to sign a form that I didn't tell anyone. I had to sign a release that was this thick. CBS, you should be proud. The release was this thick, like a corned beef sandwich at the old Carnegie Deli. That's how thick. You just sign it. You don't read it. Again, I did my own flight to California. I have no idea where Survivor is being filmed. I'm going on every chat room because at that time, it was not all being filmed in Fiji. At that time, they would go to different countries, different places. I was so super excited. Where is this going to be? No idea. They don't tell you. You get to California, you go back to the Doubletree. The first thing that happens, they come into your room and they go through and do a full body search and a full search of all your stuff. You're told how to pack. You have to have jury clothes. You have to have post-jury clothes. You have to have pre-game clothes. You have to have during-game clothes that are approved and that are set with the camera, blah, blah. You have to then send the clothes that you're going to wear to Survivor. Do you know what they do with those clothes? Guess what? I sent in my undies when they were given back to me. There was no more fly. They sew the fly shut on your undies so you don't get a turtle situation. Because then they'd have to edit that out. Little known fact there, right? So you go to the hotel and you wait. And you wait. And then all of a sudden you get a call. Be downstairs in 45 minutes with your bags. You're getting on a plane. I go downstairs. I've never told this story. I don't believe to anyone. I go downstairs and there is the cast of Survivor Kageyan. I see Cliff Robinson, who I recognize. I know who I am. So I assume it's some sort of athlete sports type season because I don't know the theme. I don't know anything. They make you not talk. You are silent. You can't talk to any of the cast members who you now know are your cast members. I recognize Sarah. I recognize Spencer. I see Tony. I see all the other people for the first time. They sit you in the lobby in different places. I'm sitting there. I can't see the other cast members. They can't see me. Five minutes, 10 minutes. I'm getting, I'm like, this is crazy. You know, what the hell's going on? I'm giving up control. 15 minutes. 40 minutes later, 40 minutes of me sitting in that lobby, I stand up. I look around, the entire cast is gone. I said to myself, wait a minute, am I being filmed? Did I get eliminated already? Like, is this, did I do something wrong? I had no idea what was going on. And let me reiterate, when you are in control and like being in control, and then you're not in control and you can't be in control, it totally freaks with your head. So I go to the bellman of the hotel and I say, excuse me, was there a group of people here? And he said, maybe. 
I said, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say anything, but I'm on Survivor and I was here with the entire cast and now they're gone. The guy turned like a ghost. He said, oh my God, sir, the Survivor bus left a half hour ago. They left without me. I had no idea what to do. I thought it was a joke. I thought that I was eliminated, that I was off the season. They changed their mind. Apparently, the, the doorman of the hotel had someone to call who were the escorts because when you fly over to Film Survivor, you're escorted by security because you're not allowed to talk on the plane. You're not allowed to talk at the gate. You're not allowed to talk anywhere. Meanwhile, I still don't know where I'm going. I've got my bag. I've got my flying clothes. They took all my phones, which I tried to sneak. They took all my Ambien and um, Xanax that I tried to sneak. They took my iPad. They took my extra burner phone, burner alert phone. They found everything. The people forgot me. They come back to the hotel, not with the other cast members. One of the security guys apologized profusely, said, oh my God, I'm so sorry, but we are so late. We didn't know what happened to you. I said, dude, I've been sitting in the same place for 40 minutes where you told me to sit. They were mortified. It never happened after that. You go to the airport. I'm wondering where we're flying. You don't have your ticket. You don't know anything. Get online and I see, wait a minute, we're on Air Philippines. We're going to Manila. So I know we're filming in Philippines. I get a seat, 89H, and I was pissed because I'm an anxious flyer. It's a long flight from LA to the Philippines. I don't wanna fly in a middle seat. I don't wanna make it seem like I'm spoiled. I don't wanna make it seem like I have to fly in first class. I go to one of the security guards and I say, listen, I, I don't wanna, is there any way that I could sit in a different seat? He said, no, this is your assigned seat. You're spread out throughout the plane. Security is throughout, spread out throughout the plane. It's a commercial plane. There's a bunch of other people on it. And it's done in a way because there's no communication. You can't talk to anyone. And I said, but wait a minute. What about that big guy over there? Because I had seen that that big guy who I knew to be Cliff Robinson, but I didn't let them know that I knew it was Cliff Robinson because I was starting to play the game because I figured maybe the game started. I said, how come that guy got extra legroom seat? Meanwhile, he's 6'10", rest in peace, Cliff. I miss you so much, brother. And I'm sitting here at 65 inches and they're like, sorry, but this is your seat. So what I did, I got on Survivor, I get on the plane, <laughs> I, this is terrible. I paid someone to switch seats, just a stranger, some random person on the plane. And I ended up getting a bulkhead seat for the, for the flight. And I gave the person a hundred bucks because they don't take your money because you can bring money. And so it's fine, right? You can bring money because if you're voted out, you go on a trip or whatever you do. So I get on the plane. Tony spends the entire plane with his head on the tray. I spend the entire plane ride totally anxious because I had nothing to put me to sleep. I didn't sleep a wink on the plane. I'm totally despondent beyond repair. We get to the Philippines. They put you in a van after we took another flight. It was a whole thing. Suffice it to say, the survivor experience is real. It's exciting. There's a bunch of days beforehand where you're with the cast, but you can't talk to them, where you're getting more medical checkups, where you're doing pregame press, where you're talking to the media, where you're taking the pregame cast picture. You never know when the game's going to start because they don't tell you. We got woken up at 2 a.m. one night and said, we're starting the game. And then you just start and the cameras roll. And then I was gone. I love Survivor. 
they did charity afterward so I could buy back all the stuff. I bid on all of my own stuff. I bid on the pen that was used at tribal council. I saved my buff. I didn't throw it in the fiber fire. I bought the chair. I bought the rice dish. I bought my torch. That was the actual torch, which by the way, they're super heavy. I love Survivor. When I was the first boot, I end with this. I got voted out after three days. I went to one challenge, one tribal council. The challenge was impossible. It's real. The hunger's real. There's no food. I lost seven pounds in three days. And I loved every second of it. And when I'm asked, how do I get on Survivor? And I say, apply. People look at me like I have three heads. How many of you want to be on Survivor but are unwilling to submit a video? Take a chance. What's the worst that can happen? That's some inside scoop on my time on Survivor. All right, we're going to go to break right now. When we come back, we have so many questions. I didn't think I'd go that long on Survivor Coca, but I could go on for even longer. I could do a whole 45 minutes of the experience of Survivor because it was so awesome. We will be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's a mailbag episode. These are fun. I get questions that you give on Apple when you rate and review. You give five stars, then you write a review. We need thousands of more people writing reviews, please, because that builds up the value of Nothing Personal for when we do whatever we're doing next. Whatever we're doing next, we're doing it together, Coca. Just you and I. Just you and I. Hi. I think that's Crystal Gale and Eddie Rabbit, Coca. Is that possible? It's a song called Just You and I, Eddie Rabbit, because I love a rainy night. All right, back to the questions. You often talk about not showing weakness, not fighting in front of the media, etc. How exactly do other teams capitalize on it if you did? Is it with trade negotiations or something else? Thank you for asking that question. I want to talk about showing weakness as a general concept, not just in baseball. But the concept is this. The reason why in a competitive situation you don't show weakness is that there are some people and some teams or some individuals who end up being able to outperform their ability because they perceive a weakness in their opponent. And when they didn't have a belief that they were better than you or stronger than you or faster than you or smarter than you, the minute they feel that you've got some doubt in your mind or some kink in your armor, they will grab it and become greater than they should be. The reason why I would never want to show weakness is because when other teams would show me weakness or other opponents would show me weakness, whether it's during a race, whether it's on Survivor, obviously I showed weakness, or whether it, whatever the case is, you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose the negotiation. 
You're going to lose the race. You're going to lose the trade. You're going to lose the player signing. You're going to lose the, the sale to the season ticket holder or to the corporate sponsor. You're going to get less money than you thought you could get. There's another word for weakness. It's called desperation. The corollary to never showing weakness is never show desperation. You know how they always say, hey, never let him see you sweat. That's why I carry a handkerchief. I don't want you to see me sweat. Sometimes I'll go out of camera sight like this. And I'll wipe my brow. People wear makeup. I actually have no makeup on, but a lot of people wear makeup on camera because the lights are hot and I've got lights everywhere. Anything that I do that I feel is weak, I do alone. There's some things I do that I think aren't weak that I still do alone, but anything that will show weakness, I will not ever, ever let them see it. In law school, when you are arguing in front of a mock jury, which I did a lot, although I even represented an actual person in front of judges, the rule of thumb is whatever happens in a courtroom, you've got to make believe that that is what you want it to happen, even when it's not. So when you see a lawyer go, darn it, I strenuously object. Remember when Demi Moore said that in A Few Good Men? I object. Denied. I strenuously object. Denied. Then it makes the jury feel like, wow, we're hearing something that really we shouldn't be hearing because it makes the client look bad or look guilty or look like they're going to lose money in a civil suit. What I would do during a meeting any negotiating session for a stadium, any contract negotiating session with a player, with a lawyer, with anybody, no matter what was said, I made believe that I wanted it said at exactly that moment. And then I would change the narrative. I would change the trajectory of the meeting if something happens that I don't want to happen. Instead of showing weakness, instead of showing despair, instead of saying, oh no, what now? I would take that, build off on it, and change the time continuum of that specific meeting or engagement. Same thing when you're making a trade. We've talked about this, right? When a player gets injured, you've got to replace that injured player. You want to hide that injury as long as possible because you do not want any other team to know that you are desperate, that you need to make a trade for a replacement player. By the way, this is in your world. Whether you're in sports or whether you work in a factory, whether you work in a law firm, whether you work doing whatever it is you do, everybody's watching, always. Even CBS knows what me and Coca do. What Coca and I do, excuse me. I think they do, right, Coca? We certainly never show them weakness. When we're breaking records every single month, there is no weakness. But believe me, there's behind the scenes weakness, but we never bring it on the air. I'm never gonna fight with Coca on the air or disagree with Coca on the air. And he's never gonna do something to embarrass me. I'm never gonna do something to embarrass him. And the reason we won't is that that would show some sort of divide that other shows would glom onto. Say, oh, that's it for nothing personal. They belong in that dinghy. The other thing is, even when you're in dinghy, you pretend you're on the Queen Elizabeth, the greatest cruise ship in the world, right? No matter where you live, no matter where you work, it's the best place to live. It's the best place to work. No matter what kind of crappy day you're having, you hide it. And I'm not talking about hiding your mental health. I'm talking about hiding the fact that you may not feel right. You don't know what's hurting me right now. My back may hurt. My side may hurt. I may have to go to the bathroom. You're never going to know. Excuse me one second. One second. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just don't show weakness. Hey, David.
Hello. First off, I want to say how much I enjoy Nothing Personal and your appearances on The Levitard Show. I know you typically discuss the most current events on Nothing Personal, but if there's a day where you're looking for content, I would love your thoughts on why the Angels front office sucks. <laughs> I'm not even going to answer the question. I just want to read it, right? It's too good, right? It's too good. So I, I, I'll just answer a quick little thing about the Angels because I may get on them sometimes. I had a tweet. I don't remember when about Mike Trout when the Mavericks got eliminated by the Clippers and I was worried that Luca could end up turning into Mike Trout. Luca's the best player in the NBA for me. Mike Trout is the best player in baseball in theory and he never plays in October because there's no team ever built around him, but it's not for lack of trying. Artie Moreno actually spends money on the team. You want to know why you're not winning in Los Angeles? It's not because Artie Moreno doesn't spend money. And most times, that's all you want as a fan base, right? You're desperate for your team to spend money. Oh, that guy's available. Get him. That guy's available. Get him. I don't care where he gets paid. You're rich. You can do it. No one wants to hear about an owner who doesn't want to sign a player. They're not interested in that. Artie Moreno has done you proud in Los Angeles. But here's the problem. Artie Moreno is using his money to sign players with reckless disregard toward building a winning baseball team. He wants the shiny new toy every year, whether it's Trout, whether it's Rendon, whether it's Otani, whether it's CJ Wilson, whether it's Albert Pujols, on and on, Justin Upton, on and on. Go back and look at the litany of players who Artie Moreno has signed, and you can't say that he has done a bad job of spending. He's done a bad job of choosing because he doesn't listen to his baseball people. And then when it doesn't work, he just fires them, brings on someone new. And then it doesn't work, he fires them, brings on someone new. That's what you do when you're an owner and you're not winning. You fire people, even though you're the one who's doing it. Is it ever going to change? Not with Artie. You also wanted to know whether or not he had to convince Mike Trout to stay. Are you really asking that question? Is there someone out there who's wondering why Mike Trout signed a $430 million contract? I think that was the amount, Coke. I may have it wrong. Are you really asking me that? Okay, you don't get the show. I appreciate that you watch the show and listen to the show. I really do appreciate you. But Mike Trout signed that contract because there's no way he wasn't going to sign that contract. It's just business. Okay, so I like when questions start with so. Here's the next question. Since you have brought up expansion again, alongside talk of the A's and their quest for a new stadium, I wanted to ask a previous question again. I don't recall reading this before. With team value skyrocketing over the last decade, and with most having owners who bought in at a fraction of that, how many buyers exist for a team that ends up on the market? It doesn't seem feasible for new buyers at 10 figures to expect the same ROI as their predecessors. Does that vastly thin out the buyer market? Or is the allure of being the owner of a pro sports franchise enough for franchises to continue to be a hot commodity? Thank you for asking that. Have you ever heard of GFT? Coke, have you? Do you know what GFT stands for? You don't? The greater fool theory. The greater fool theory states as follows. And I sum, summarize, because I don't have it in front of me, and I just thought of this right now. The greater fool theory states that when you own something, 
there will always be a fool greater than you that will want to own it at a higher price than you paid for it. The greater fool theory is an absolute slam dunk, accurate, correct state of being in the world of professional sports. And the reason GFT works in sports is three letters. The fifth letter of the alphabet, the seventh letter of the alphabet, and the 16th letter of the alphabet. Five, seven, 16. Hurry up, are you doing it? Are you doing it, Coca? What's five, seven, and 16? How fast are you doing it while listening to this show? You're not pressing pause. You're still following, rating, reviewing, and telling your friends about nothing personal. E, G, O, ego. Do you know how amazing it is to be an owner of a team? I was the president of a team and it made my ego so big that it got me into trouble because you feel like you're in the room where it happens. You feel so important. It's so stupid now that I'm three years out after being fired. And I realized that my, I was just as happy working on Wall Street. I was just as happy delivering newspapers. I'm even happier right now doing nothing personal. But there's something about when you are the president of a team when you're in it or the owner of a team when you're in it that you just can't get enough. It's like drugs. It's an addiction. There's dopamine going all the time. There's people who care what you want to say, even though what you're saying is absolute horse hockey. Now on nothing personal, it's totally different. You care what I want to say, but I have to be good because I have to earn your listen every day. I have to earn your follow every day. It's a little exhausting, but I love it. And I respect the fact that I certainly don't take you for granted. But in the president of a team or an owner of a team, forget president, let's talk owner. You couldn't give a flying rat's ass about whether or not a fan likes you or doesn't like you because you own a team. You've heard the Steve Ballmer story from me, right? Steve Ballmer couldn't get into a restaurant, founded Microsoft, was worth a gazillion billion dollars, bought the Clippers for a couple billion, which was in his checking account or in his next to his bed, under his bed, wherever it was. And all of a sudden, he's famous. Everyone wants his autograph. Everyone wants his picture. He can eat wherever he wants, whenever he wants to. That's not a joke, folks. That's real. And when you are wealthy, it's because you're good at what you've done and you've got an ego. When you buy a sports team, your ego goes up by 5x. And you think because you were good at what you used to do that you can be good at what you're now going to do, which is why owners get involved so much. What about the return on investment? Do you do it for the money? Back in the day, many owners, that was their principal source of income. They bought it like any other company. They ran it like any other company. They used their wits, their intelligence. They tried not to use their emotion. They bought a team for a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million, $40 million, $70 million, $100 million. And they wanted to make the numbers work because the money they made at the end of the year, the profit they would use to buy their first yacht, to buy their third house, to get to be invited to Sun Valley, blah, blah, whatever the case is. But then they held the team. They ran it for five years and 10 years and 15 years. And their initial investment was 10, 20, 50, $100 million. And their team was worth a billion dollars. And all of a sudden, they realized that they could borrow money from a bank using the team as collateral, and then they could buy the yacht or go to Sun Valley or do the things they did. 
So ROI was not a big deal because you always knew GFT is in effect. Someone's going to buy the team if I want to sell it, or I'm just going to pass it down <clears throat> to my children or to my spouse or to my aunt and uncle or my niece and nephew, whoever the case may be, or to my friend, my Roman or my countryman. Is that what Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter are feeling right now when they bought the Marlins for $1.2 Do you think they're not worried about ROI when they put together a group of 25 people, including Michael Jordan, to buy the team, and now they're all wondering why the team is losing so much money? and they could give a crap about ego or about any of it, they want their money back. So what we've seen is actually a complete change. Because teams are worth so much more, original owners at lower price points are not as interested in what the return will be versus teams that buy in now at these much higher numbers, even as Steve Ballmer has got to run it like a business. And as owners change, and believe me, you're going to see a full change in team ownership because all the old white guys are going to die. I mean, not soon, like in 30 years, but eventually. And then the team will be bought by a different party at a high number, and it will be run like a complete business. So when you wonder what the expansion fees are, when you wonder what relocation fees are, when you wonder what team values are, and you wonder, are there fewer people available to buy teams? The answer is no. Because whether or not, do you know during COVID that the billionaires became more billionaires and the poor people became poor and the middle class kept disappearing, but the rich got richer? I mean, the really rich got really richer. The sort of moderately wealthy and comfortable sort of stayed moderately wealthy and comfortable. The middle class got disappeared like they always have. And the people who were poor got poor during COVID. And do you know that what billionaires want? They want toys. Isn't that terrible to think that the team that you love, that you put all of your heart and soul into is actually a toy? But is that consistent with what I said? Whereas if you buy a team for $2 million or $3 million, it can't be run like a toy? That you expect an ROI? Because you're not sure whether the team is going to go up another billion or another billion? I bury the lead. The people buying the teams now for multi-billions dollars, of billions of dollars, the individuals who are the billionaires, not the groups of people like the Bruce Shermans and Derek Jeters. I'm talking about the Steve Ballmers of the world, the Jeff Bezos of the world, who already have their billions. It's all relative, right? It's like if you have a net worth of $100,000 and you buy something for $10,000, that's sort of a big deal. That's 10% of your net worth. If you're worth a hundred billion dollars and you buy a team for $5 billion, that's only 5% of your net worth. And do you know that the percentage of net worth, if you are worth $50,000 and you spend $10,000 and that's 20% of your net worth, that is extremely important and meaningful. But if you have $50 billion and spend $10 billion, that's the same 20%, but guess what? You still have $40 billion versus $40,000 meaning it doesn't mean as much, meaning it's always going to be a toy. It's always going to be an EGO play. There's always going to be a greater fool who says they can do it better than you. They can win more. They can get more sponsors. They can get more fans in the stands. They can get better players. They can change the culture. That is what new owners always say because that is what their ego tells them to say because anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Thank you for that. I like that question.
All right, I got to end with one because I'm not going to skip this one, Coca. I'm just not. So we may go over 45, but I'm, I'm doing it. I'm sorry. David, is there any truth to the claim that pitchers pitch to the scoreboard? There's a lot of other parts to the question, and they want me to talk about win-loss, but I want to talk about pitchers pitching to the scoreboard, pitchers pitching to the speed gun, because there's a whole thing in baseball now about wins and losses. Don't count wins and losses. We're looking at all the other analytic data. We're looking at spin rate. We're looking at whip and WHP squared to the third times four. People are going to college to study it. People submitted papers back in my day. Now it's even more so. They go to an Ivy League school or non-Ivy League school. They write a 20-page paper on why it is that Mike Trout hits 310 and not 320. And here's the type of pitches he doesn't swing at, but he should swing at. Blah, 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 blah. Boring. What are pitchers paying attention to? Do you think that when they're in line for a win, let's say the team, and this was in your question, if the team is up 5-0, that that means the pitcher's okay giving up runs. But if he still gets the win, it's better to have a win. Is it better to just look at ERA and have a pitcher with a low ERA but no wins or a high ERA with 20 wins? We had a pitcher named Tom Kohler. Tom listens to nothing personal. He's a fan of the show. Tom was a winner at every level. He won games. The new breed of GM in baseball cares less about winning games than about putting yourself in the statistically best position to win those games. I am a consequentialist. I want to win games. Maybe the position players, for whatever reason, hit better when I pitch versus when the next guy pitches. Do I think it's a big deal that Jacob deGrom doesn't get a lot of wins? You're damn right I do. Does that mean Jacob deGrom is not the best pitcher in the National League? Does that mean he's not going to win his third Cy Young? Does that mean he doesn't deserve the money he gets paid? No. But what it does mean is that his team doesn't score for him. He doesn't get wins. And it's not like he's only pitching three innings. He's pitching more than five innings, which is what you need to get a win. There's something going on there. I would rather have a 20-game winner with a five ERA than a five-game winner with a two ERA. Why? Because that's 15 extra wins I don't have to spread out through an overtaxed bullpen. For the life of me, I don't understand why people forget the bottom line in baseball is not stats. It's not analytics. The bottom line is winning, winning, winning. It's just business. Thanks for all the questions. This is nothing personal.